The pandemic has brought home to all of us the importance of the public services we sometimes take for granted. Not just the NHS, but schools, local councils, the police and prison service have all faced huge challenges keeping the show on the road. And clear leadership has been crucial to this task. Now, more than ever, our public services need great head teachers, chief constables, great prison governors and hospital directors. But what makes for great leadership in the public sector? How do you make sure your organisation is delivering for the public and not squandering hard-earned taxes? How do you handle a crisis or navigate the complex relationship with an ever-changing government? I'm Justin Russell, and I work alongside the justice system as Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Probation. I've spent my life working with and learning from inspirational leaders who have done all of these things and more. In this special series for Bridges to the Future, I'll be speaking to just some of those who have survived and thrived at the top to find out how they did it and what they can teach you. So join me for a lesson in leadership. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Justin Russell. My final guest in this series on lessons in leadership is one of the world's leading experts on the subject, a professor in leadership at Henley Business School and an associate fellow at the Said Business School at Oxford. He has worked as an advisor on leadership development to a wide range of private and public sector organisations around the world. And as a founder of the Edgecombe Consulting Group in 1995, he developed the primary colours model of leadership, which has been highly influential in government in the UK and elsewhere. He has written extensively on the topic and the latest edition of his leadership book, Leadership No More Heroes, was published last year. His name is Professor David Pendleton. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining me. A real pleasure to be with you. So, David, in this series, we've been focusing specifically on, on public sector non-profit leadership. And I've interviewed some very inspirational leaders who have led prisons and secondary schools and government departments and voluntary organisations and now they've moved around, all of them have led, I think, exclusively in the public or non-profit sector. Do you think there are differences between great leaders in the public and in the private sector? Can people be great leaders in both, do you think? I'm sure they can. Leadership is essentially about creating the conditions for people to succeed, almost irrespective of context. And so I'm absolutely convinced that similar skills are required, although what I have noticed moving myself as a consultant and as an advisor between those two sectors, and indeed the third sector, the charity sector as well, is that sometimes what differs between them is the culture of the organisation and the values that are sort of very obviously evident in them. But in terms of skills and knowledge, I'm absolutely convinced that leadership is leadership. And, and I think it's leadership, you know, people talk about post-pandemic leadership, change leadership, all of this. I just think you can knock all the qualifiers off. It's all just about leadership. And in your primary colours model, which I mentioned in my introduction and has been very influential in, in government, you, you talk about the different domains in what you call the territory of leadership. Can you say a bit more about what those domains are and why you think they're important? 
Sure. Can I start two paces back from that? Uh, Why did I write this thing in the first place? And it's because about 20 years ago, when I came into the field of leadership, I did the classic thing that people like me do. I started to look at the research and see what was being written and said about leadership all over the place and so on. And I have to say that I believed, and to some extent still believe, that the field of leadership is a mess. There are no commonly agreed standards of leadership. There are no commonly agreed approaches to leadership. It's as if the dominant ideas which you'll find today about leadership come from a variety of places, including the 19th and 20th centuries, when the world was a very different place. So I kind of felt I needed to go back as a psychologist, believing that leadership was essentially about people, go back to some fairly basic principles to try to create a set of common ideas about leadership and a common vocabulary about leadership that might be useful irrespective of the context, irrespective of the setting or the sector in which the leadership had to be demonstrated. And so when I started to do that, I started to ask myself a question, what is it that leaders actually have to do? And that's why I put the primary colours model together. And what I discovered as I started to read and also to practice as a leader in my own right in a variety of different organisations, what I discovered was that leaders have to operate effectively in three domains. There's a strategic domain, which is all about tomorrow, and has very few facts in it, may I say. There's all the world of possibilities, but very few facts. There's the operational domain, which is full of facts. It's all about today. It's all about Gantt charts and targets and goals and budgets and all of the typical kind of key performance indicators and so on that that is the language often of management, but it's still a domain of leadership. And then thirdly, there's the interpersonal domain, because irrespective of where you're working or whatever timescale you're working on, the key is to bring out the best in people and to take them with you on a journey. So those are the three domains that I identified. The strategic, which is, I think, where most of the uncertainty sits, the operational, which is where most of the complexity sits, and the interpersonal domain, which is where most of the ambiguity sits. And do you think the balance of those domains is, and the importance of them is, is different for public sector as opposed to private sector leaders? One of the themes I've discussed in previous conversations is the challenges of operating in the strategic domain when you're often operating in a, in a highly political environment and where it's often politicians rather than senior leaders that are expected to set the strategic direction. Does that present particular challenges, do you think, in that domain, for example? I think it does. I'm very much a realist about this, and I've been doing some work recently on a programme at Henley for government property professionals, very senior people in the in every department across across government. And we've been talking about this very issue about, uh, you know, who looks after the strategic domain. Well, fortunately, or perhaps inevitably, the strategic domain represents a cascade of issues from the most political, national or international issues down to much more kind of close range future issues, slightly smaller scale, and so on. But the strategic domain 
is one that still every leader needs to consider. And if certain decisions are given by someone else, like a Secretary of State or even a Prime Minister, or even a mandate to to an entire government through an election, still you have to translate that into the short and medium term targets that you're going to then use as the basis of your planning and organising so that you can then deliver against them to deliver results. So what I would say is that we've always got to realise that Not everything is under a leader's control. But what's interesting also, perhaps to those who work in the public sector, it might be surprising to know how often leaders in the private sector say very similar things. I remember talking once to a CEO out in the Far East who was the CEO of by far the biggest organization in a huge conglomerate. But he said that in his organization, there were six people more senior than him. <laughs> and he was the CEO. <laughs> and one of the things that you found through working with many organizations around the world is that almost no one is equally good at operating in each of those three domains. Everyone has strengths and most people have weaknesses too. Can you say something about that? Yeah, it's, it's an idea I'm, I'm very convinced by having now looked at quite a lot of research on this subject, but it is by far and away the most controversial suggestion that I make in the book. What I'm arguing is, exactly as you said, it's very hard for one leader to be very good across all three domains. People who have tried, in my experience of having assessed with my colleagues, literally thousands between us of leaders all over the world, what we found is that those people who try to be even-handed in terms of their development in the strategic, operational, interpersonal domains, is that sadly, they often end up rather mediocre in all of them, because there are trade-offs to be made. And so there are all kinds of reasons why that may be the case, not least because the neuroscientists, my colleague at Reading University, Trish Riddell, who's professor of psychology and neuroscience, she says that when you're operating in the strategic part of your brain, there's a mechanism which switches off the operational part and vice versa. And that's before you even get into the complexities of the interpersonal domain. So it may well be that it's very hard, certainly, to think about both simultaneously. But of course, as you spend more time in one particular aspect of your leadership in that particular part of your brain, then of course, those circuits grow much more easily accessible, those neurons grow a little closer together, it's easier to think in that way. And so in a sense, you create a kind of self-fulfilling tendency to reach for your favorite approach to thinking about leadership issues, which may well be strategic, operational, or interpersonal. And let me tell you that my colleagues and I, as I said, having assessed thousands of leaders all over the world, we've never yet found one, not one, who is world-class in all aspects of leadership. And now that's either the world's worst sampling error, or it's something that we've got to take seriously. Yes, I think there's a nice quote in your book where you say, while the best leaders are not well-rounded, the best teams are. Indeed. It comes from a book that Gallup wrote a number of years ago, which is the summary of decades of their research on leaders and leadership all over the world. And that was one of their summary statements, that in their view, having, like me, having assessed hundreds, maybe thousands of leaders all over the place, their summary statement was exactly that, that the best leaders are not well-rounded, the best teams are. One of the things I was particularly interested in in your book was about alongside the domains, you talk about the core enablers or competencies 
of leadership, including things like the ability to inspire or the ability to focus on details. And I think you talk about the difficulty of both being able to be inspirational, but also to be good on focus and planning and, and delivery. That seems to be a particularly tricky thing for, for a single person to hold in their heads or to be equally good at. Yeah, well, let me say two things about that. The same principle about it's being hard to be good across the piece on all the tasks of leadership defined by the primary colors model. I take the same approach to those five enablers because they distribute around the model. So it must also be true that those things which are correlated with different aspects of the leadership tasks, if it's hard to be good across the board in one, it must also be true in the other. And that's certainly, again, my experience working as a consultant and working as a coach to leaders of of various kinds of different kinds of organizations internationally. Now, it's fascinating for me also to notice that When you start to practice team-based leadership, it feels as if we're kind of letting leaders off the hook. We're saying, it's okay, you can't be perfect, don't try. And it sounds as if we're kind of letting them off the hook. Actually, what we're doing is simply substituting one difficulty for another. The difficulty you have to take on board is you've got to work with people who are not like you. Now, this is the whole diversity agenda writ large, but I don't speak about that. I speak about complementary differences because I think that there is a motive for creating diversity and inclusiveness in organizations, which comes essentially from a kind of social justice agenda, whereas the leadership agenda is all about effectiveness. And that means that certain of those differences become more important than others. And it's not that they are intrinsically more important. So for example, I don't believe that the operational domain is intrinsically more important than the strategic, the operational. I don't believe that the task of creating alignment is any more important than the task of planning and organizing. They they all have to be done, but rather that it depends on who you've got in your team already. And so you'll have a particular balance of those capabilities across your team. And if you're looking to recruit someone new into the team you need to do it having in mind where are the gaps you know because don't make the mistake of trying to cover a double bed with a single sheet you know it doesn't matter which way you pull it there'll be a gap what you've got to do is having recognized that I'm not going to be complete myself it's up to me then if I'm the boss to put the right people around me that give us a fair chance of creating complete leadership between us. How do you do that in practice? How do you build that into your selection and assessment procedures? It's not something perhaps that the public sector has been particularly great at. Are there good examples of organisations that have been able to to do that? Well, I think that there are. It's not so much even specific organisations, but rather just specific examples of recruitment tasks that get done. So, you know, if you're, it may be that one organisation does a great job of that when looking for their FD, but not when they're looking for their operations director. Say. And so the first thing I'd say is that it starts with insight about me. I have to understand what I bring to leadership. It starts with self-insight. And when I get comfortable with what I bring to leadership, in other words, what my strengths as a leader are, that will often give me the courage to face the things that I'm really not very good at in leadership terms and the things that I need others to put around me. So it took me 20 years of trying to develop my ability to be a good at planning and organizing before I realized I must be a very slow learner. But it took me 20 years before I realized that I was not getting any better at it. <laughs> Maybe I'm thick, I don't but, but my colleagues, I was running and working in a partnership at that point. And my partner said to me, David, stop, <laughs> stop, this is too painful. Let us do it for you. 
And that was, in a sense, the breakthrough I needed. They offered to do the planning and organizing for me, provided two things happened. One is, when they suggested there was something I needed to do, even though I was the boss, I had to agree I'd, I was going to do it. I wasn't going to overrule them if, if I've given them the task. If it has implications for me, I need to take that on board. But the second thing I uh, wanted to realize was that they wanted me to do the things that I was good at because they weren't good at those things. So I was more able to inspire. I was more able to create alignment among the team, but I wasn't very good at planning and organizing. So we kind of had this kind of composite team-based approach to leadership. And that's what I think is the most compelling of all, is that we can quickly create a more complete leadership team by making sure we've got the right people around the table, rather than try to set everyone on a development agenda on their own. Incidentally, the reason I said that the notion of incomplete leaders being part of complete leadership together. The reason I say that's controversial is because there is in neuroscience a principle of what's called neuroplasticity. That is that the brain really can change. You can alter through deliberate time and effort and focused attention. You can alter the way your brain works in certain important respects. But the problem is it takes such a lot of time. You know, you've got to throw an awful lot of time, energy, resources at that problem. And you may just not have that time. So my view is the quickest way to get complete leadership is to put the right people together and then learn how to bring out the best in each other. One of the other interesting things in your book is about the changing relationship between leaders and the led over the last hundred years or so, and the very different models of leadership that people have come to expect. Now we've gone from a, you know, a very hierarchical dominant model a hundred years ago to something where people expect something much more inclusive and collaborative in, in terms of how they are led. So to what extent do people not expect anyway leaders to be to be heroes, to be dominant, to be highly extrovert? Are people are the led actually looking for a different sort of leadership now, do you think? I don't know if it's as conscious as looking for a different kind of leadership. But what they're looking for, I think, is certainly a different kind of relationship with their leaders. I'm not trying to be tricky here, but I think it might be an important distinction because I think that able people well, everybody would like a voice in their organizations, but able people in particular, not only do they want a voice, but they expect to have a voice. And if they don't get one, they'll often go somewhere else where they can have a voice, have a say in the way things are thought about and done. So my sense is that what able people are looking for from their leaders is the opportunity to be heard, not to overrule, not to veto, not to be dominant, but rather to have a voice. And fundamental to this, I think, is two things. First is a growth in maturity. You know, we get, there are four stages of maturity. We go from total dependency of the infant through counter-dependency of typic, more typically of the adolescent into independence of the adult. But of course, there's a fourth stage, which is this idea of mutual dependency. It's okay for me to depend on you and you to depend on me. But of course, in most developmental matters, it's not a smooth or inevitable progress. So the approach to leadership I take is placing a particular burden on leaders to move through those stages of emotional maturity in order to recognize their interdependence. And then the second thing, of course, is that there are skills and matters of sort of keeping ego under control that allow us to bring out the best in each other. Some teams seem to be greater than the sum of their parts. 
others rather less than the sum of their parts, because not all differences are complementary and not all similarities are complementary either. You can be separated by both. So what you need to learn is a little humility, a certain amount of maturity, and some of the skills for confronting differences in order to bring out the best in both parties around that difference. And to what extent can those personality traits be changed? One of the other interesting things you've written about is the underlying personality traits for effective leadership and the research that's been done around what you call the big five traits. Are there certain personality types that are more effective leaders, do you think? Well, interestingly, the answer to that has changed in the last 25 years. At the turn of the millennium, which is only 20 years ago, of course, there was a tradition of saying that there are no significant and consistent personality correlates of effective leadership. That all changed in 2002 with a seminal paper by a guy called Timothy Judge in the States, and it's been replicated a number of times since then by Bob Hogan and others. What he demonstrated is that if you look at those big five personality characteristics, neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness and conscientiousness. You can significantly predict two things about leadership. One is who's likely to get a chance to be a leader. It's called leadership emergence. And the second is how effective are they likely to be when they get the role? And what it seems to suggest is that leaders who are resilient, i.e. slightly lower in neuroticism, more extroverted, open and conscientious, are both more likely to get a chance to become a leader, but also are likely to be a bit more effective when they get those roles. Now, that's not a completely deterministic model. These are correlated relationships, and you're not taking up the majority of the variance between the two things either. So what we're saying is a number of personality characteristics kind of lean you in the appropriate direction, a bit like saying a fairly stocky chap is likely to be able to play on the front row of a scrum, you know, whereas a more slightly built guy probably isn't. That's not to say it's impossible. You know, similarly, you know, a tall, a tall bloke may well do better at basketball than a short bloke. Now, you know, there have been some wonderful examples of short basketball players who are sensational, but there aren't many. That's the point. So those relationships, while statistically significant, don't predict completely. But what we do when we're getting people to understand their personalities is to get them firstly to understand that their personality is likely both to help and hinder them in different aspects of leadership. So for example, high levels of openness seem to create the curiosity that helps in the strategic domain, but that very same personality characteristic can become distractibility in the operational domain. So the same characteristic can be both a help and a hindrance. And so what we try to get people to do is understand, firstly, where do they start from? So what is their personality? How can they understand it? How does it help them? How does it hinder them? And then secondly, where is it worth their while putting in developmental effort because they have a limitation, which is a potential strength? That is, they have some characteristics that they've not yet learned to capitalize on. But where have they then got limitations, what I would call resistant limitations, because they really haven't yet developed a capability in an area that their personality is also not well suited to. So what we're trying to get people to do is to say, by all means, work on those limitations, which are potential strengths, clue or cue your personality to tell you which those are. But think of a different solution where you're working in an area of resistant limitation. And that's where I get the planners to help me. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the other extreme, you also point to some personality traits that can be extreme derailers of effective 
leadership in terms of personality disorders, narcissism or psychopathy, which some people have speculated are actually quite common in some leaders. Do you want to say something about those, those derailing personality traits? Yeah, there's a, there's a classic book called Snakes in Suits. And that, that book basically argues that the characteristics that you need to propel yourself up the greasy pole in most organizations are perilously close to psychopathy, <laughs> snakes in suits. And the author of the first draft of that chapter in our, in our leadership book was Adrian Furnham, who was on The World This Weekend talking about Vladimir Putin, currently enough, talking about different potential personality disorders that, that his behavior might be suggesting as well. So the point is, though, that personality disorders don't stop a person doing much, but what they can do is cause major hindrances. And they're the sorts of things which are eminently fixable. But the first thing is to become aware of them. And that, that I think, is the, a, a common theme in many of the things I've been saying to you this morning, which is the key to becoming an effective leader in a team of leaders Therefore, the key to being an effective, incomplete individual leader, but playing your part in a complete leadership team, the key is maturity and facing up to our own strengths and limitations and honestly grasping both and thinking of the appropriate action to take in each case. You mentioned climbing up the greasy pole there. What do we know about people's motivations? Why do people want to become leaders? Do you think those motivations are different for the public sector than they are from the private sector? I'm a great believer with respect to those different sectors in the kind of overlapping distributions between them. You, you'll certainly find people who thrive in one context and definitely wouldn't thrive in another. But you'll find an awful lot of other people who could thrive e equally well in both contexts. And so in terms of motivation, my guess is, in fact, the evidence that we have so far, is that in the public sector, you've got an awful lot of publicly minded values that seem to propel people to want to introduce and to sustain activities which are consistent with those socially just motives in the public sector. But equally, I could take you to a great number of people in the private sector who have just the same values. And many of them, may I say, who, who achieve very high office in organisations are not, I think, so much propelled by their own motivation up the greasy pole, as it were, but rather they're just very, very good at what they do. I can think of one in particular. I think of Rod Eddington, who a number of years ago ran British Airways, and he's a, he's a guy that I, I got to know extremely well and he's now a friend of mine. But Rod, who's now Sir Rod Eddington, he... He, I think, didn't particularly seek to be the chief executive of anything, although he ended up as chief executive of three different airlines around the world. What he wanted to do simply was do the best job he could in the job he had. And that got noticed. And the way he empowered other people got noticed. And so he got propelled up the ladder himself. I can think of another, Kevin McCulloch, who became chief exec in a utility company. And his motivation for doing a great job was simply the moment he got any managerial role, he said he regarded it as his job to make himself redundant, i.e. he wanted to develop the team around him and his subordinates to be able to do the things that at the moment only he could do. 
And he ended up, therefore, in a sense, rising by enabling people underneath him all the time. And in both cases, I don't think there was a particularly explicit motive to become the CEO, but they they weren't going to turn it down if they got that opportunity. Should we talk a little bit about the the role of gender and leadership? One of the things that the civil service, for example, has had some success in in recent years is increasing the proportion of women in the most senior roles. And I've spoken to some of them in this series. Are there aspects of gender to leadership styles? This is a wonderful, big, rich subject. I'm sure we don't have time for it. But some of the headlines... You know, some people some people said that the 19th century belonged to Britain because we turned the world's atlas as pink and the 20th century belonged to America and the 21st century, it normally goes, you know, it's going to belong to China. My belief is that 21st century is going to belong to women because what we need increasingly is the characteristics which are more traditionally associated with women. I'm not saying it has to be women, but they're more sort of feminine characteristics like collaboration rather than competition and so on, and nurturing, for example. And what's interesting also is that as the personality correlates of leadership emergence and effectiveness were studied 20 years ago, as recently as 20 years ago, it was the dominant assertive version of interpersonal competence, known as extroversion, which has assertiveness as one of its subscales, which came out as the most predictive of leadership. Now, what we're finding is that agreeableness, which has got things in it like modesty and altruism and compassion as subscales, in a sense, much more traditionally associated with women, it is those characteristics which are becoming much more predictive of effective leadership. And the evidence for that is a database which the Edgecombe Group that that, that I used to run years ago have, looking at the relationship between the 360-degree feedback as a measure of leadership effectiveness and personality as judged through the big five personality characteristics. What we've discovered more recently, and John Cowell, my colleague, first drew my attention to this, he said, what's happened in the last 20 years Just as we predicted, there was a power shift in leadership and we were going to have much more participation and collaboration. So agreeableness has come much more to the fore and that is a much more feminised version of interpersonal orientation than is extroversion, which is much more typically muscular, if you you will. And do those things also map onto the interpersonal domain in your primary colours model? Do you think that particular domain, the ability to form strong relationships, interpersonal relationships, is is becoming more important as a leadership skill? I am, I think, never going to be tempted to say that any of those aspects of leadership are more important than any others. They, They all need to be done. And the reason that we've described them as tasks It's the what of leadership that we've tried to describe rather than the how. The reason we've said that these tasks all need to be done is because there is another aspect of this which we want to draw people's attention to, and that is that you can't make up for a deficiency in one of the tasks by being brilliant at another one. So, for example, you know, if you're no good at creating alignment amongst your colleagues, and that's a leadership task, no amount of delivering results is going to make up for that. If you're no good at planning and organising, no amount of building relationships is going to make up for that. You know, they all need to be done, but not necessarily by you. David, listen, it's been great talking to you, some really fascinating insights, and I really would recommend everyone read your book, 
this whole series has been about lessons in leadership. It's unfair to ask you this, but if there were two or three top lessons you'd want to pass on to end this series, what do you think they would be? Okay, first, I'd say recognise that you're likely to be incomplete as a leader. And don't worry about that. Everybody is. But try to work hard at finding where your genuine leadership strengths are and where your limitations are that need other people's help. So that leads me to the second one, which is put the right people around you. You know, sometimes people say, I look always to recruit people who are better than me. Well, that's not the issue. You need to recruit people who are different from you. And you can be as good as you like in your aspects of leadership. Just don't let it dominate because there'll be other times which other aspects of leadership call for. So that would be the the second one, I think. And I think if I were to offer a third, it would be, it's not just welcome feedback, it's seek it out so that you're never resting on a a level of capability that you've developed already. And if you're really good at something, try to become even better. Try to become, you know, this term people that often use world class, but don't feel that you've got to make up for the things that you're not very good at, because the route to trying to get good at those things, if you try to do it yourself, it's a long, frustrating, tiring business, which you're more likely to give up on. So put the right people around you. David, thanks very much for talking to us. A great note to finish on and to finish this series on. And good luck with your next project. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.